So Colossians chapter 3. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord, Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husband as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. So yesterday was hazardous waste day at the Acton Transfer Station. Of course, most of you know we live in Acton. And we can... uh, you know, we have a transfer station. We don't have a town dump, so we have we pay taxes, but we still have to bring all our own trash to the transfer station. But they have a careful list of things you can't bring, like flammables, oil-based paints, 
any kind of hazardous waste. So twice a year we have hazardous waste day. And yesterday was one of the days and, and we're moving out so I have to clear out all the hazardous waste from our house and loaded up my car and moved, went toward the transfer station. On the way there, I just happened to have WBZ news radio on to check the weather. And they had some little snippet called parent report. And the fellow came on and gave 60 or 90 seconds of advice on parenting. Now, I don't remember the content of his report. All I remember is his name. Because a parenting report by Doug Cope. And I thought, if you're talking about parenting, COPE is about as high a standard as you can manage. Then I get into these little, I get this little shtick going on when I go to a new place. You know, deal with, deal with the counter staff and all that, and their lives are boring. I try to liven it up with a little humor. So I got to the transfer station, and the guy meets you up there and says, oh, go this way if you have this, and go. And, you know, they, they filter you through a series of questions. So some fellow comes up to me and says, do you, for hazardous waste day, he says, do you have any CFL light bulbs? I said, no, but I got a couple of teenagers. Where do I take them? <laughs> anyway, yeah, yeah, he laughed and said, that's next month. <laughs> Yesterday in the afternoon, he went to a home group. I won't tell you which one. It's no, not harm. You know, it's, it's true of all our home groups now, you know. When we came here 16 years ago, the average age in this congregation must have been about 24, 25. All these young adults full of energy, ambition, full of dreams about the future. Now married with little kids. And we were at a home group last night where there was more toddlers and little guys than there was adults, really. And you think, you know, you can have a PhD, you can have an MD, you can be an engineer, you can manage a work team. But still, when you come home, it's those little guys that run your life. And they don't even need to be able to talk to dominate you. So there are challenges to parenting. Now, some of you would know The Onion, a uh, satirical news, fake news website. Well, there's a, a, a Christianized uh, corruption, a Christianized imitation called the Babylon Bee. They had an article about parents entitled, Fam a Parents Going to Church and then going home afterwards. And it was entitled, Family's Piety Lasts 12 Seconds After Leaving Church Parking Lot. <laughs> and they'd gone and they'd had a sermon about First Peter, titled Holiness in Our Lives. And, and as they're going out, they're thinking about, oh, how to bring holiness into my workplace and how to bring holiness into my homes. And, and, and the article reads like this. Despite the heartfelt emotion and determination that the worship service had engendered in parents Lloyd and Mary. While the car was still turning onto the main road, their five-year-old son Hunter punched his brother Taylor because he wanted to. In turn, eight-year-old Taylor took away uh, Hunter's Jake and Neverland pilot, Pirates toy resulting in a high-pitched, sustained yowling that in turn caused 15-year-old Sophie to launch into a mono monologue about the low mental acuity of her younger siblings. After about 10 seconds, Mrs. Granger responded with a hissing rejoinder that everyone needed to turn around and just stop it. Then the Granger father was jarred out of his contemplations by this cacophony 
And he responded with a vague, somewhat angry threat of the regret all would feel if they did not listen to their mother that very instant. After 12 seconds of this, any vestiges of piety in the minivan had been completely eradicated, resulting in a discordant row discordant row and personal sniping that only subsided when the warring family called a fragile ceasefire on the promise of lunch at Cracker Barrel. So we have noble ambitions of spirituality that hit the the hard reality. The hard realities of marriage, life together, the hard realities of childbirth and childhood, the hard realities of living together as a family. This is obviously in the front of our minds, at least for some of us, because a couple of weeks ago, the sermon was on Philippians. And the theme of Philippians really is about making nice with each other, but it's really focused on making nice among church members. But immediately afterwards, we're at the door, some people were joking with me about making nice among husband and wife and, and making nice about uh, parent and child between parent and child. So the sermon really wasn't about that, but that really touched on, when we think about making nice, we think about the tensions we face, often as couples or as families. Now, a striking thing about Colossians is that it combines lofty theology in the first couple of chapters with very concrete visions of domestic life and church life in the second two chapters. And it weds these two together. Now, Paul doesn't explain why he combines them, but I I think there's an underlying sense to it. So what we'll do this morning is first look at the theology that he talks about, and then at the practicalities he talks about. And there's not a direct, most of Paul's letters start with theology and end with practicalities. And mostly there's a direct connection between the two. When we looked at Ephesians, Christ has conquered the demons, theology, practicalities. Therefore, we don't need to fear demons. Practicalities and theology immediately connected. No obvious connection in Colossians. But I think there's an implicit connection in this. When we first come to Christ, when we're single, we have visions of how God might use us when we're young and single. Visions of what, how God might use us, how we might serve Him. And with dating, we're all excited about the potential for this relationship. And I remember the vows Irene and I wrote for our own wedding. The, the pastor made us use his vows, and then we added our own vows. And, and I don't remember, I had them written down in my hand because I wasn't going to remember that, that day. I don't remember all the detail now, but I do remember how idealistic they were about how we were going to serve God together more effectively than we would apart. And we have all these great ambitions and dreams. And, and then life gets a little bit complicated. Because you start living together and and the challenges of that. And, you know, then the kids come along and, whoa, the bandwidth for serving God is dramatically decreased. And and the energy and the time are dramatically reduced. And, and, you know, we can get get to be a bit jaded or just weary or tired. And... That seems to me to be the most obvious or the only apparent connection that might be going on between the theology in Colossians and the practicalities that follow. Because of this, 
The theology is really about some some people in Colossae or some teachers had come in from the outside into Colossae and they were teaching about how to revive your spiritual life, how to get your spiritual life to a higher plane. Now, when we're young Christians, when we're single young adults, this typically is not such a big worry for us. When you're married and married with kids and married with kids in a high-pressure job, it becomes a much bigger issue. The people are coming to Colossae, Colossae and saying, here's a new theology, here's some new practices that will lift your spiritual life to a higher plane. And Paul spends the first half of his letter saying, no, it won't. Jesus is the highest plane there is. There's no higher plane to get to. And then he goes on and tells them how to live together in the mundane aspects of life, church life, work life, family life. And I think that as we look at the overall structure of Colossians, that's the lesson that we can take away, really, is that spirituality is not advanced or or determined or elevated by having a new experience or having beyond Jesus, right? Or or having new practices beyond prayer and and Bible. Our spirituality is not suddenly, automatically, dramatically boosted by these things. Spirituality is instead something we work out day by day in the mundane aspects of living together. Living together as a church, living together as a family, or living together on the job. So let's take a look at Colossians. First, we're going to sketch out the theology of it, the, the new ideas that people were bringing into Colossae. Then we'll look at Paul's rejection of those new ideas and his affirmation of spirituality through the mundane activities, mundane relationships of life. Turn with me, if you went to uh, Colossians, we'll start with chapter 2. We're going to get to chapter 3, but first we'll start with chapter 2. Because this is where we see the theology. Now, I'll, I'll explain to you the theology that was coming into Colossae that was supposed to change their lives. We won't go into much detail about it because it's not so parallel to what we have. What we have today is the notion that certain theology or certain spiritual disciplines, certain practices will change your life. So there's a commonality at a higher level. We'll look briefly at the details, but then reflect on the commonality, mostly at the higher level. Turn with me, Colossians chapter 2, look at chapter 2, verse 8. Notice how Paul writes, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Well, they did not differentiate in the ancient world between philosophy and theology. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive ideas which depend on human tradition and the elemental spirit forces of this world rather than on Christ. So some new theology was coming in. Verse 18. Don't let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels... Now, we don't know what's going on here. We can't figure it out this late. It could have been that they were worshiping angels, venerating angels. It could have been that they were venerating angels as intermediaries between God and man. Maybe. Or it could have been that they were entering into the same kind of worship that angels, they worship with the angels, they worship God. We don't really know. But there was some kind of idea coming in that they can, that involves angels and involves worship. And another component of it comes out in verses 20 to 23. 
Why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with, perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations have an appearance of wisdom. They're self-imposed worship, they're false humility, they're harsh treatment of the body. They lack any virtue in restraining sensual indulgence. Clearly what was coming into Colossae was some sense of asceticism. A particular spiritual discipline. You, you want to be careful the, the things you uh, eat, the things you drink. You've got to be careful about your diet. And these rules are not just uh, health. They're really for spirituality. So let's take a step higher because we don't normally face these things in modern America. Not a whole lot of asceticism takes, uh, takes hold. But we do have this notion, common enough, of a, some kind of second experience after conversion. It started back in the 1700s, at least. I don't know any further back than that, but it was common in the 1700s. When John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, came first came as an Anglican missionary to, uh, to Georgia to reach out to the Native Americans, and he was on the boat coming over, and there was bad storms at sea that thought they were going to drown, and he panicked, and he saw some other people on board that were Moravian missionaries, and they were celebrating, and they were singing hymns, they were trusting in God, and, and he panicked. And, and then, uh, he was a missionary, right? But then, he, through their example, he began to explore other dimensions of Christian faith, and he came to a second experience. Now, many of us would look back and say, Actually, that was his first experience. You know, he was a cultural Christian before then. A very devout cultural Christian, but he hadn't had a personal encounter with God yet, even though he was going to be a missionary. But he interpreted it as a second experience, and he started this notion that you have this first experience of conversion, which might not change your life. What I think we could really say is, if your conversion doesn't change your life, you're probably not converted yet. But he had some kind of experience of conversion, which didn't change his life. And then he had this second experience, and then he be developed that into a theology. And then in the, that was in the 1700s. And by the 1800s, a whole lot of groups had come along with this notion that we have a second experience of God that was going to lift us to a higher plane of spiritual life. And it was the holiness movement. You know, basically, you get converted, and you, it doesn't really change your morality or how you conduct yourself. But then you have a second experience in a holiness movement, and then that, then you start living at a higher plane of uh, holiness or more power for service. So when I first became a Christian, I was converted, and, and then it made a huge change in my life. And then, then my friends started saying, oh, no, no, there's a second experience you need to have. And, oh, I'm okay. I'm, you know, sure. I, I, I'd like that. And so I had a second kind of a transcend, transcendent, a mystical uh, uh, yeah, experience. Hmm. I'm not sure it changed my life. The, the, but the point here throughout Paul's letters is in Colossians, in the book of Colossians, they were urged to have a second experience of God involving angels, asceticism, whatever. We're urged to have second experiences. A different sort but still second experiences, as these are the key to live us, lift us out of mundane spiritual life into some higher plane of service or of living. That was their occasion, and it has parallels to ours. Now notice Paul's first response. His first response is, they don't need a new theology. They don't need new spiritual disciplines. 
They don't need new mystical experiences. See how he makes this point in chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. Really what he's saying is, the experience of Christ that we have, and Christ being in us, there is no higher thing to aim for than this. Angels in their day, angels, they're lower than Christ. Asceticism, it's unnecessary. He said, there is nothing higher, no higher experience, no higher spirituality than Christ in us. So Paul stresses the supremacy of Christ in verses 15 to 17. The Son, notice how Christ is superior in the world. Chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. The Son is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. Why would you care about angels or saints or other intermediaries? For in him, in Christ, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. There is no higher spiritual experience available than knowing Christ, because there is no higher spiritual being in this universe than Christ. Christ is supreme not only in the world, Paul says, Christ is supreme in the church, verses 18 and 20. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. How can there be anything higher than Christ? He's supreme over all of creation. How can there be any higher experience than knowing Christ? Because he's supreme in the church. He's the head of the body, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And Paul keeps going. How can there be a higher experience? Because we've already experienced Christ if we've come to faith. Verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Now he's reconciled you to, by Christ's physical body through death to present you faultless, holy in his sight, without blemish, free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm. Paul is saying, Christ is supreme in all of creation. Christ is supreme in the church. Christ is supreme in our private lives. He's, as they face this, as they face this uh, new teaching about angels and new spiritual disciplines and asceticism in order to reach beyond the mundane level of the average Christian to a higher plane of living, Paul is saying, there is nothing higher. No one, no one higher than Christ. And nothing higher, no experience higher than being redeemed by Jesus. So Paul's response to the new heresy or the new teaching is to say this. No to the new teaching. There is nothing higher. And then he turns in chapter 3. Turns in a new direction entirely. He says... What we need is not a new theology or a new technique or a new experience or, or a new discipline. What we need is simply to live out in the daily grind and 
high points and low points of life. What we really need is just to lift, live out this theology we have. We live it out in our moral lives, he says in chapter 3, verses 5 to 11. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. We lift it, live this out in, in our personal lives. We live out the gospel and its commands and demands. Uh, we lift, live it out in our church life in chapter 3, verses 12 to 17. As God's holy people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. You see, his point is, we don't need new revelation. Uh, we don't need new experience. We don't need new angels or spirits or somehow to help be our intermediaries to God. What we need is to live out the, what the gospel calls us to in our personal moral lives. Put to death sexual immorality and purity. Rid yourselves of anger, rage, and malice. Do not lie to each other. We live this out in our personal lives. We live it out corporately as God's chosen people. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts together as a community. We don't need a new gospel or a higher plane of living. We simply need to plug away at working out the gospel in our personal relationships, in our individual personal lives and in our relationships within the church. And then he turns in that same context to family life, verses 18 and 21. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Now, I know we'd like to pause here and spend a lot of time talking about do wives really have to still submit to their husbands? And can husbands still, in what sense can they still legitimately lead their family life? We won't stop and pause that. We're taking an overview I'm not afraid. I know you can't fire me. I'm retiring, so it's not like that. <laughs> Another time, we'll look at that. Well, the, your next pastor can take you through that. But notice, what, what he's saying is, we don't need a new theology, a new experience, a new discipline. What we have is Jesus and redemption and relationship with him. What we need is not a new theology or, or experience. What we need is to live this out. And live it out in two directions. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. And notice children and parents. Children, obey your parents. And everything for this pleases the Lord. And yet he says to parents, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. So the gospel is not something, there's not something new we need to learn in addition to the gospel, new we need to experience in addition to the gospel. What we need to do is bring the gospel to bear on our lives, on our personal lives as we consider what holiness is, on our relationship as a church community, and on our family lives. We need to bring the gospel to bear. And finally, he turns to what you could call in today's world our work lives. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it, not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart is working for the Lord. 
But he doesn't talk just to slaves. He talks to masters. Masters provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Now, this also is controversial, Paul's advice to masters and slaves. And actually, we'll have an opportunity to look at this in, in a week or two as we look at Philemon. We'll look at it more there. But still now for this morning, the high level. You see, throughout what he's saying is the gospel is marked not by new or Christian life is marked not by new experiences, new spiritual practices, new theology, new spirits. What it's marked by is taking what we know about Jesus and what he's called us to and living it out. Living it out in our personal life as we face issues of holiness and purity. Living it out in our community as we live together and bump up against each other. Living it out in our families. Living it out on our job. Notably, we can take Colossians, the structure of Colossians, as a model for our church life together. A lot of our time, particularly from the pulpit, is spent studying scripture and talking about theology. And that's perfectly legitimate because this is crucial to who we are as Christians. Our culture will tell us one thing and we need some kind of positive uh, reinforcement in another direction in order to resist the culture and say, this is what God calls us to. This is who God is. and This is who we are before him. We need theology. But in all of Paul's letters, and this one in particular, Paul links theology with practice. And how we live together, how, how we live personally, ethically, first of all, matters, then how we live together as a community matters, and how our fellowship groups and relationship groups and how our community as a whole functions are crucial to spirituality. Our home life is a crucial dimension of spirituality. Our work life is a, a crucial dimension and, and perfectly legitimate places for us to focus our time, even the sermon time, the pulpit time. Now, we do have structures for some of this now. We have, basically, we have fellowship groups that are distinguished according to life stage. We have youth group. We have young adults fellowship. We have uh, maps for young parents. We have GPS for older parents. And, and each of these groups spends a fair bit of time focusing on what does it mean to be a Christian at this stage of my life? Notice the message of Colossians is that theology and talk about God is crucial to our spiritual lives, but equally crucial to our spiritual lives. Chapter 1 of 2, Colossians, about this. Chapter 3 and 4, equally important to our spiritual lives, is how we live. How we live personally, how we live as a community, how we live as families, how we live on the job. This is what God calls us to. Not to having new experiences or discovering new disciplines which are going to suddenly lift us to a higher plane and make a magical difference. But to the daily challenges of life together. Figuring out how we can be his people in the context in which he's put us. In the social context as we live, the moral context. In the church context as we fellowship with each other. In our homes, as we raise our children or as we relate to our parents. And on the job, as we work with our colleagues, as we supervise and are supervised. This is equally as much of the gospel 
Now, this is also something that we can think about as we look forward into a new pastor coming in. Because of my background and because of my interests, I've spent a lot of my time on theology and Bible. It's perfectly legitimate as we face the future if the next pastor puts the emphasis a little bit different. If instead of theology here and practicalities here, we end up with theology here and practicalities here, ministries differ according to callings and according to passions. Now, we don't know what the emphasis will be on the, of the ministry of the new pastor as they come in. But I would tell you that scripturally, there are these two, two concerns that the Bible has. How we think and how we live. Now, given my background and given my skills and given the brevity of my, the anticipated brevity of my subsequent life, I think it's in, in the best interest of this church and the, the fulfillment of what God's called me to if I step aside and spend more time on wrapping up what I've figured out theologically and biblically, wrapping that up. And hopefully, leaving you in hands that can give you give more thought and more emphasis and more concentration on this question. The practicalities. If this is who Christ is and who we are before him and, and what he's called us to and how we experience him, what does that look like as we fellowship together? What does it look like as we develop our family lives? What does it look like on the job? Let's pray together that we can figure out both these things side by side. Because scripture puts them side by side. Both how we think and experience Christ and how we live together in community. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. But it's merely a reflection of you, so we thank you for your character that you teach us what to think and how to believe. You teach us about yourself and about ourselves before you. And yet you call us to live a particular way. We pray, Father, that not only would our theology, but also our lifestyles would honor you and help us in the daily challenges of everyday life to figure out how best to do that and to forgive ourselves when we fail and to celebrate when we succeed. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.